This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, everybody. Welcome into another edition of the Pipeline Podcast. Tim McMaster here along with MLB Pipeline's Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo. It's a big week as we start to look ahead to the 2019 draft, believe it or not. Never too soon. The College World Series is set to start on Saturday in Omaha. Jim will be there at some point. He's going to help us preview that event. The Tournament of Stars is next week at the USA Baseball Training Complex in Cary, North Carolina. Jonathan and I will both be there for Jonathan for the whole thing, me for the end of that. So we'll talk about that a little bit as well. But before we get to those topics, we're going to look back one more time at the 2018 draft with the help of Royal Scouting Director Lonnie Goldberg. Lonnie, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, Lonnie, I guess to start things off, um, you know, you had obviously five picks on day one, which which is a great situation to be in. And by all accounts, you did a great job with those picks. But in the first round, Brady Singer falls to you at number 18. MLB Pipeline had him ranked number two in their draft rankings. How much did Singer being available there at 18 kind of help set the tone for your entire draft? Well, I think you hit it right on the head when you talk about setting the tone. I mean, when you get a guy as, a, as a advanced as he is, a uh, proven winner coming from a major program that's uh, already won the College World Series and going back again this year, um, to set the, uh, set the tone with that being your first pick um, really shapes up the rest of your draft. Lonnie, if we told you uh, at the beginning of the year, before you even went out on the scouting trail, you know, no questions asked. You can have Brady Singer at 18 and Jackson Kowar at 33. Would you, A, have taken it, and, B, would you thought it would be crazy that you would get both of those guys? Well, A, we definitely would have taken it, and, B, we would have thought we were crazy to get both of those guys. So, yes, <laughs> to both. Um, um, the, the good part about this is, is that um, when you have guys of this kind of caliber um, and your guys are working to – to create as much depth in your list. Uh, we did a good job, in my opinion, of making sure that we didn't count anybody out. We did a lot of homework on both. Um, uh, obviously, Brady was from the area, the same area scout had Brady in high school. Uh, so that helped, obviously, a lot with the feeling. Now, when we got into the draft room, we kind of settled in um, to start putting the board together. Did we think he might fall to us there? No, but because of the work that our guys had done prior to that, we were prepared if he did. And as the, uh, as the night started to unfold, um, we saw it as a possibility. And um, at that point, we just continued to have good conversations. And obviously, it got down the last couple picks. And when Brady was available, we, uh, we scooped him up and then were able to turn right around and have Jackson be available at uh, pick 33. So um, pretty good start to the day. Uh, a very excited room, uh, a very excited town here in Kansas City. Uh, these guys have... Um, have been known players across the country. And uh, I think with them being in the regional, obviously this weekend, our fans, uh, you guys know our fan base, they followed them a lot. Um, and so it's a pretty excited group right now. 
Lonnie, I don't want to, you know, focus only on, on those top two guys, but you, you answered it partially. And I would imagine, you know, as the, you got closer to June, you know, a guy like Kowar, you thought was sort of in the neighborhood of 18, but I would imagine, especially for you as a scouting director, there are only so many days and only so many Fridays that you can go see a college pitcher. How much did you have to rely on, uh, you know, the, the work that your area guys did or previous work? Because I would imagine, I would have to imagine you didn't go see Brady Singer multiple times as a, as a guy who looked like a primary target for you. No, and uh, you hit it on the head with the, the fact that you got to rely on your guys. But we had seen him a bunch. I got to see him in the fall, and I actually saw him and Mize match up um, in Gainesville. I forget how long ago it was. It seems like it was yesterday, but I know it was a long time ago. Not this weekend, but the previous time. So I've seen him match up twice. Um, so I kind of target dates, obviously, to I think we all do. Let's try to get matchups and uh, utilize our time the most. I think because of the conference that they play in, uh, you're able to pick up another pitcher, obviously position players with India and, and obviously others that were in the, in the conference. So I was able to actually see Brady twice this year um, and obviously picked up uh, Jackson for a third time. Lonnie, in those first five picks, you ended up taking five college arms. Um, I know obviously you're always going to take a lot of pitching in the draft, but as far as the college side of things go, is that just how it worked out, or was there some kind of a plan to lean towards the college players over the prep players? Well, I mean, I think what, you, what we always do is try to take the best available player, and when Brady was there um, at pick 18, we, we obviously did that as fast as we could. Um, there was an emphasis, I think, that we were going to place on taking advanced pitching, but we weren't going to sacrifice it for ceiling. Um, and I, I've said this multiple times, the group that we took, uh, especially on day one, we, we feel those guys still have ceiling left. And um, the unique thing about those guys is they're all big. They're all 6'3", 6'4", 6'5", or better. Um, they have frames that still can add weight to them. And um, we, we think that there's things that we can do to, you know, potentially increase and make, make their breaking balls better, make their uh, fastball better, make their command better. So it's an interesting group um, in the sense of the things that we think we can do with them. Uh, we caught, in my opinion, Daniel Lynch on the upswing. We caught him towards the end of the year on multiple occasions, and each time he continued to get better. And I believe he went seven straight starts of going seven innings or more, maybe ten straight starts. I can't remember. But we, we felt like we are catching him in stride. And I had a lot of history with him in high school. Uh, our staff did a lot of work on him in high school, so we felt good about that. Uh, Bubik obviously had a tremendous cape um, and, um, you know, a good program out there. And we had a lot of history with him. So we felt very comfortable with the group we got. But I think at the same time, you know, we took a group that still has ceiling. And one thing that we've done a little bit in this draft, in my opinion, is we we acquired guys or drafted guys that, that strike out a lot of people. I think all of these guys are up over 100 strikeouts uh, for the season. Um, Jonathan Boland struck out 18 in one game and was up to 97 or 99 that outing. So we still feel like we got some ceiling, but we got some guys that can probably mix in with our crew that's coming through Lexington and Wilmington. And that was some sort of focus for us, but um, as the draft kind of fell, we just kept trying to take the best pitchers. Uh, Lonnie, I actually want to follow up. I want to ask about a college hitter that you took. Uh, Jim and I, you know, we split up the country in terms of our draft coverage, and Kyle Isbell was a guy who um, who kind of interested me from from the get go, just as you know, that sort of college performer. But uh, you know, I got some 
some comps from scouts to Jason Kipnis. I know, you know, he, he mostly played the outfield, but he's dabbled at second base. Has there been any talk at all about, you know, where you guys see him and, and talk a little bit about his, his offensive potential? Absolutely. We were uh, pleasantly surprised he was available there on day two. Uh, he came to our stadium for our pre-draft workout, and he's a really, really good center fielder. He's got real natural feel instincts to move out there. He's not a blazer, but his um, his clock, his baseball clock is really good. And we asked him prior to the um, to the workout if he minded taking some ground balls at shortstop second base, and I was floored by how easy he did it, um, especially for somebody who doesn't practice it full-time. He said he did it a little bit during the season on occasion. I think that was probably more so maybe some scouts had asked the coaches to during pregame. But he was really, really natural at both positions. And, um, you know, we were fortunate enough here to obviously have Whit Merrifield, a guy that's bounced. So I think he's played every position but maybe short and catch for us. And you see what the versatility can do to a ball club. And uh, while we think, you know, Kyle's a, a plus center fielder, I think the, uh, um, the opportunity for him to play the infield uh, in, in pinches may help us. But we're not going to do that with him right away. My guess is maybe an instructional ball, mix him in a little bit at second base. Um, but like I said, we really believe he's a, a plus center fielder, and you guys know our ballpark. It's a huge ballpark where you got to cover a lot of ground, and, um, and that, that's our main focus. But he had a tremendous season with the bat. Um, I was, uh, like I said, I was very shocked but very excited that he was available for us on day two. Lonnie, I want to ask you about the first high school player you guys drafted this year, uh, Kevon Jackson in the ninth round. I mean, the Royals have a history of drafting super speed guys like Jared Dyson and Terrence Gore and others. Uh, and this guy is, is what? He's a 100-meter state champion in Arizona. It sounds like he's in that same mold, but he, he might be a little bit more polished than those guys were when you got your hands on, on Dyson and Gore. Is, is that accurate? Yeah, I think so. He's a lot stronger. Um, our scout, Kenny Munoz, uh, we, I think I was going to see Libertor or somebody out in Arizona. He said, hey, let's run by and catch this kid, take some BP. And he told me, he goes, I think he's about as fast as score. He said, I'm getting three eights, three nines down the line. And I was expecting to see somebody that, that wasn't real physical. And we rolled up to, for his BP, and he's strong. Like, he's really put together, and he's really strong. He's probably about five nine. Um, but then meeting with the coach, coach through BP to him, meeting with the coach and getting a little bit more history on where he's from and the fact that he was getting football offers and track offers and he didn't even play. Um, I guess he ran track uh, only because uh, somebody asked him to run over and run in the meet. He never practiced at it. He just ran. Um, so, and I think he came in first or second in the, uh, in the 100. I know our scout went to the to the state championship. And the only reason he went is he lost to a kid the year before, and that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to beat him. But I heard he never even – he didn't even go out for track or track practice. He just kind of showed up and did it. Um, he can really fly. He can uh, – he's strong. He's got more thump in the bat than those guys did. He's just behind baseball-wise. He didn't get a chance to play summer baseball. He was injured this, uh, this summer. So um, – you know, it's our typical type of player. It was one of those situations where our scout did such a good job with him, and we loved the kid that I didn't want to take a chance and wait until day three and maybe somebody scoops him up because they heard his name and really don't do anything with him. So we went ahead and did it on day two and, and uh, secured him and obviously just signed him a couple of days ago. Lonnie, congratulations on a draft that's getting rave reviews, I think, from across the industry. Thanks for taking some time to kind of go through it with us. 
I appreciate it, guys. Thank you for everything you guys do. All right, that was Lonnie Goldberg, Royals scouting director. Uh, they had five picks on day one, um, and I, as I mentioned, five college arms. Um, this is a team that's in rebuild mode right now. Jim, because of that, because of the five college arms, you would think these guys are going to start you know, making their way a lot sooner than if they had you know, gone with, with uh, the prep guys. Yeah, and they've gone with the prep guys recently, and it hasn't worked out as well. Uh, you know, Scott Blewett and Foster Griffin are, you know, coming along okay. I mean, you know, I think they hope that they'd be a little bit, we have a little bit more success. They both kind of hit the wall in Double A this year. They were 2014 draftees. A couple years ago, they had two first-round picks, and then they spent them on Indiana high schoolers, and, and Nolan Watson has really struggled. Nash Russell isn't even in baseball right now because he, he had trouble finding the strike zone. So they've They've gone that that prep route uh, with the pitchers and have had you know some real struggles with that. Um, and you know, like Lonnie said, uh, you know, I, I think being realistic about it too. You know, when, when the major league team is entering a rebuilding phase and the farm system's kind of thin because some of those high school pitchers haven't worked out. You know, some of their high picks in recent years, and, and frankly, they traded guys to, to build a couple of pennant winners and a World Series champion. You know, you, you could put some college guys in, and they can move a little quicker, and, and kind of get some talent rising through the system a little faster. But it'll, it'll be interesting. You know, I do our, our Royals top 30 prospect list, um, and just kind of eyeballing it. I mean, I could go kind of crazy, but I mean, I could probably put seven or eight of these draft picks on their top 30 if I, if I wanted to be really aggressive with it. So, um, you know, obviously, you know, you have three first-round picks. You know, you're going to look pretty good right after the draft. Um, but, you know, to get Singer and Coar, I, well, I mean, wow. You know, I mean, those were two guys that we had ranked higher than 18, which is where the Royals' first pick was, and they got them at 18 and 33. Jonathan, when you look at the way the game is set up now with compensation picks and small market, large market teams, the Royals built a team. They built a winner. They went to two straight World Series. They won a title. And then maybe like no other team I've seen, they happen to just be set up where – all of those guys were free agents at once, and, and obviously they brought back Moustakis and Escobar, but that set up this draft, and it sets up a scenario where they had to nail this draft, right? Because if you don't nail this draft with this situation they're in where their their um, you know minor league system is right now and coming off all that success, you could be in that dangerous area where you could go into a drought. Yeah, well, without question. And they knew that, you know, that this was coming in the last uh, few years. We, you know, we always visit with every team in spring training, and uh, I think the last two years I've gone to, to Royals camp, and Jim has been there in the past. And uh, they they knew that there would come that sort of uh, point in time where they had to, you know, pay the reaper, so to speak, just because of they went all in to, to win, and it, and it worked. Uh, and it is – exceedingly difficult uh, especially if you were you know not in a, in a in a market that can bring in free agents at the big league level constantly to have continued success at the big league level and a strong farm system at the same time uh, it, it, it it's tough and so they knew that there was going to be you know a little bit of a drought in farm system wise and that's where they are now and uh, they've uh, did get set up uh, because of the compensation picks to to get better in a hurry, and uh, you know Jen mentioned the, the, you know, some of the high school arms that haven't really panned out. Uh, you know, maybe well, one or two of them will end up being okay. Last year, you know, uh, with Nick Prado and MJ Melendez, uh, I think uh, 
Jim and I are in agreement that, that those are really interesting high school players who, who, you know, look like they're promising. And now to bring in all these college guys, especially the college arms, who you know, next year will probably join up with Prado and Melendez, say, in high A, if not higher, uh, it gives them that influx of, of, of much-needed talent and much-needed talent that should be able to move fairly quickly through the system uh, and, and help sort of bridge that gap uh, of, you know, uh, what because of the, the trades and things that they made to, to go for it all a few years ago. All right, let's transition to the College World Series and Omaha, and it's a nice transition because we've been talking about the Royals, and Florida will be in Omaha at the College World Series with Brady Singer and Jackson Cower, also uh, Jonathan India, who went number five overall to the Reds. J.J. Swartz was an eighth-round pick. Lots of talent, obviously, always on that Florida Gators team. Uh, Jim, you are going to be there at some point, right, in Omaha? I am. I'm, I'm going to be there. Uh, the calendar, uh, my, my schedule is a little crazy this year, so I'll be there just for the championship series. I usually like to try to come in for at least the final four, and I think I say this every year in the podcast. Uh, it's still my favorite baseball event after all these years, and I think, if I'm counting correctly, this will be my 30th College World Series in the last 32 years. Wow. And Which it's... makes you old. <laughs> it does. Now, he was there in diapers. I, I've been going there longer than my, my my well before my kids were born. So, um, but yeah, no, it's a great event. It'll be interesting because on paper, the way the brackets are set up, it seems like we should have a Florida Oregon State showdown in the finals. Although I've covered enough of these, that a lot of times the best teams somehow get shocked and, and go out in two games too. But but right now on paper. It would seem like we would be looking at the Gators versus the uh, Beavers in the final. And those both those teams are loaded with 2018 draft guys. I mentioned the three guys that went in the top 33 picks uh, for Florida. Jonathan, Oregon State's got three guys that went in the top 37 picks, uh, Magical and Larnick and, and Grenier. I mean, that's a team loaded with guys that are going to be pros uh, as soon as this thing's over as well. Yeah, really good program with with really good high end talent, and uh, I mean that's I haven't been to a college world series in, in quite some time, but I loved it when I was there. And um, I mean, put aside for a half a second, to, you know, the, the high end draft talent that'll be there. It's just that the competition, the atmosphere is phenomenal. And then add back in that you're going to get to see, uh, you know, all this talent. I mean, if if you end up with that Oregon State. Florida finals to have Singer and Coar pitching to Magical and Larnick. I mean, that's uh, that's a lot of fun, uh, and it's a lot of fun for the for for college baseball fans and for you know, fans of the teams that drafted those guys to to see them compete at that level before they begin their pro careers. Uh, it should be uh, an exciting tournament for sure. It's a lot of perennial powers in it this year, Jim. Florida, Oregon State, North Carolina's back after uh, a few years away. Uh, Mississippi State, Texas. Uh, Arkansas has been real good lately. It seems like Washington is kind of the Cinderella story, right? They are. I mean, they're a team that hasn't been there before. They beat Cal State Fullerton to get to Omaha, and Fullerton's a perennial power. Um, you know, it, it's interesting uh, the way that one's set up. You get they, they get to play an unseeded team at least in the in the first round. Um, in Mississippi State was not one of the national seeds. Um, although, you know, Mississippi State, I would assume, would probably throw Connor Pilkington, which is a pretty tough assignment. It'll, it'll be interesting. I mean, my, my experience, it's not always true, but the vast majority of teams that get to Omaha for the first time and, and or don't have players who have Omaha experience tend to be overwhelmed by the moment a little bit. Um, 
and sometimes those teams go 0 and 2. So we'll see, but they are the Cinderella story. I mean, from a talent standpoint, I'm working on a story about the top prospects on each team, and I don't know if they have a real standout. I mean, their best prospect is probably uh, A.J. Graffinino, who's Tony Graffinino's son. He's a shortstop, kind of a defensive-minded guy. And, you know, but, I mean, he, he was, you know, just you know, compare him, you, know, you mentioned all the Florida first-rounders, and Florida might have three more guys for first-rounders in future years. You know, Graffinino was an eighth-round pick of the Braves. So it, it will be kind of a, a lot to overcome for the Huskies, you know, having not been there before, maybe in terms of talent, you know, maybe not being as talented as some of the other clubs they'll play. But all that said, um, they've overcome a lot to get here too, and I always, I always love seeing the teams get there for the first time. I'll admit, part of me was kind of rooting for Tennessee Tech to to beat Texas. Nothing against the Longhorns. That, that, that Tennessee Tech team, I think, had the best winning percentage, and still might in Division One. It was just a very veteran team that was loaded with junior and senior talent, so that would have been kind of fun. And and then. Uh, yeah, I was I was a little torn. I was kind of rooting for Duke. hadn't been there in a long, long time. Although, you know, Duke broke my heart on draft night by eliminating my Georgia Bulldogs by beating them twice. So I I, I can't say I was 100% invested in Duke, and I think they were there back in the 50s. But it is always kind of fun to see the teams that haven't been there before break through and and get out there to Omaha. So there'll be a lot of talent, just 2019 guys as well, obviously, in Omaha. And at the same time, in North Carolina, Jonathan, a lot of high school talent. The Tournament of Stars is back at the USA Baseball National Training Complex. You put out your uh, 2019 mock draft this week, and of your top 10 picks, five of them are actually going to be at the Tournament of Stars. So basically your five high school guys will all be on hand there. And it starts, I think, with a guy we talked a little bit about at a week ago on this podcast, and that is the guy who a lot of people think could be the number one overall pick, Bobby Witt Jr. Um, he's going to be there at the Tournament of Stars. How excited do you see him live? I mean, of course the five high school guys are on there because everyone knows USA Baseball follows my way-too-early <laughs> mock draft. They actually too. waited on the rosters until they yes, saw Yes, they did. Draft. Everyone was waiting around. Uh, quite the contrary. Uh, probably goes more the other way. Yes, Bobby Witt Jr., uh, who we saw last year at the Tournament of Stars, played on on Team USA's 18 and under national team as an underclassman, um, along with Bryce Terang, uh, who who was a first round pick and an, and an early favorite to 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 possibly be the number one pick. Uh, that's the cautionary tale. I think Witt might have more all around tools uh, than Terang did and does. Um, you know, as I said in the mock, and I think we mentioned last week that you know scouts. Uh, Scout said that had Witt been part of this year's draft class, he would have been at or near the top. Uh, you know, he's definitely a shortstop. He's got tools across the board that are above average to plus. Um, you know, so it's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of fun to see him. You know, last year uh, he played alongside uh, Terang, uh, and they switched back and forth between playing second and short. Uh, now, shortstop, I would presume, is is all his. I mean, there are other uh, good shortstops uh, that might end up on, on the U.S. team. C.J. Abrams, who also made my top ten. Uh, Georgia is a you know really high-end athletic player. Uh, you know is, is another guy who you know, plays some shortstop. But you know, Witt is a is a guy that uh, I think uh, I'm really excited to see him kind of take the helm and be you know be the leader as a as a guy coming back to to Team USA. 
for people that are unfamiliar with the Tournament of Stars, it's a little different, I guess, last year and this year as opposed to previous years. But they'll break up. There'll be 80 players there, and they'll break them up into four teams. Uh, they'll play a series of games. And then on Saturday, a week from Saturday, they'll actually play a gold medal and a bronze medal games, where basically the teams that did the best during the week will match up for gold, and then the other two teams will play for bronze. We will stream those games on the USA Baseball website. So definitely tune in for that. You can see these players, some of the pitchers, but um, – all of these position players um, basically will be in action, Bobby Witt and, and C.J. Abrams. Um, in your top 10, Jonathan, only one prep arm, and that's Hunter Barco from the Bowles School in Jacksonville, Florida. You had him in at number three. Um, what what will we see from him? Uh, he's just a, a, a big, strong lefty. Fastball's up to the mid-90s already. He's got a slider and a changeup. Throws all three pitches for strikes. Super, super competitive on the mound. Um, we remember, you know, last year I guess you know we saw Matt Libertor, um, and he was the top high school lefty. And this year's draft class, the, this coming year it'll be Barco. Um, you know, it, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how he performs in this setting. It's you know it's really good competition, um, but he is you know making the the showcase circuit, and that's you know the the high school. Showcase season gets kind of insane. Uh, Perfect Game National, I think, is this weekend. And then there's Tournament of Stars. uh, And then there's – you've got the two different All-American games. You've got East Coast Pro Showcase. You've got the Area Code Games, which is right after Tournament of Stars. So these guys are going to be really, really busy uh, crisscrossing the country and and competing against uh, top competition. One of the things that I love about Tournament of Stars – is that it's multiple games, as is the area code games, and it's playing for something. Um, you know, to, the chance to play for the the national team in international competition is a, a really nice uh, sort of carrot to dangle, uh, and, and often you, you see some really, really good performances. It's not just show how good you are against other players in front of scouts. It's, you know, also show how good you are in front of the USA Baseball staff so you can try to win a gold medal yeah from the 80 players that'll be whittled down after the tournament of stars and then they'll um, have they'll get together and then they'll you know show off a little more before the game is sele- team is selected it's the pan am games this year and of course that 18 under uh, usa team has won so many gold medals in a row it seems like every year we're talking about on draft day the guys that were a part of a previous gold medal team for team usa t- usa at the 18 and under level all right uh so that's college world series tournament of stars both going on next week um college world series starting on saturday as far as the draft goes a lot of players have already signed. Um, obviously, none of the guys that will be in the College World Series next week. But um, about 10, Jim, I think you were saying first-rounders. Um, how does how does this time frame usually work out? Obviously, sometimes it's the first-rounders that sign last as opposed to picks 2 through 10. Well, it's really changed with the new CBA and the bonus pool system that, that came into play in 2012 where – in the past, you'd have literally like $150 million worth of bonus signings on the deadline day because anybody who was getting over slot, and they were kind of bogus slots because they were established entirely by MLB and were not reflective of market value, any of those guys would sign at the last minute or at least have the deals announced at the last minute. Um, but now with the bonus pools and you have to know exactly what you're spending on guys to know what you can spend on later guys, uh, you know, the vast majority of these players, even though – 
teams are not supposed to do this. Teams get a dollar figure from them. Will you sign for this? Yes or no? Because, you know, they need to know how much money they're going to have to spend on their other selections. And I'd say the vast majority of guys drafted agreed to a number before the draft. And MLB, you know, it's different. You know, like now there are penalties that nobody wants to incur if you go more than 5% over your pool, so nobody's ever done that. Um, and so now you could just kind of sign whenever, and, and they don't care. And you want to sign a guy for over slot up top? fine because they know you'll you'll save money elsewhere to, to me the real interesting thing so far this year is i, I we've not seen an overslot first rounder out of the 10 who signed and last year there were 14 overslot picks in the first round and i don't think any of the first 16 picks this year are going to go over slot like i was surprised matthew libertor didn't go over slot after dropping to 16 when we thought, you know, Jonathan and I both like him a lot, and I think Jonathan would have taken him 1-1. And I think there may only be maybe at most, you know, four or five over slot guys in the first round, and last year there were 14. So I don't know what has made the pendulum swing. I mean, the the, the slots go up every year um, by a rate that's tied into the, the increase in baseball revenues. But it has been interesting that, that that nobody's gone over slot. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's interesting because I wonder if that's why. I mean, there, there can be a host of reasons, but you know, trying to figure out why Matt Lipertor and Brady Singer dropped, uh, and this is you know conjecture more than anything else. Uh, but as teams are making those calls that Jim alluded to, um, you know about will you sign for X amount of dollars? Uh, you know, there may have been some lines drawn in the sand on both sides of things, and uh, teams decide to go in the direction of, of cutting deals and, and saving money and getting those underslot deals done as opposed to someone that might have, you know, uh, and, and Singer and Libertor are only just two examples because they're the most sort of dramatic ones. Uh, instead of, you know, signing full slot or, or you know, slightly above, uh, above pick value, um, uh, so I wonder if that figured into it that as they start to drop down, teams, you know, some teams had to scramble, I'm sure, uh, you know, and once they got out of the top ten, it does make sense that it would be teams that have multiple picks, which made it even more surprising that the Rays signed Libertor for, for under pick value for that, for that first pick. So, yeah, a lot of, of deal-making and a lot of money-saving up top so they could aggressively go after players later on, I guess. Jonathan, is there still value to players signing early just so they can report and, and get into professional baseball sooner? Yeah, although, I mean, because the, the signing deadline is, is so much earlier, uh, you know, it's July 6th, uh, that used to have a lot more value for when you know, the deadline was following spring or even when it was late August. You know, if you signed on August 15th, you weren't going to go out and play, um, especially because you had so much time off. Uh, now, even if you wait until right at the deadline, you're still, and that's part of the reason why they, they moved the deadline up, you're still going to be able to, to go out and, and, and get, you know, a couple months of professional baseball in and then instructs, uh, you know, before you head to your off season and, and prepare for your first full professional season. So uh, it's not as big of a deal. But, yeah, of course, I mean, you sign early, uh, you can get to your facility and, and get yourself ramped back up and, be ready to go, you know, pretty much at the start of a uh, of a short season. 
the quicker you sign, the more at-bats or innings. Uh, you can get more at-bats, really, because so many of the pitchers, uh, especially the college guys, will be treated uh, understandably cautiously. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the, the more time you can get out, and that, and that can give you a head start into, into your first full season next year. Let's finish the podcast up, unfortunately, on, on a bit of a down note. There's been some key injuries. Um, one former prospect, one current prospect. Just wanted to touch on those. Uh, Shohei Otani, the sprained UCL. He's going to be shut down for a bit. He got platelet-rich plasma. He's not going to throw for several weeks. Um, Jim, I'll go to you on Otani first. Obviously, he's a guy who can hit, too, but when you're nursing an injury like this, they're not going to put him out there to swing the bat either. Um it had been such an electric start. Um, in your mind, what does this injury mean for Otani? Uh, it, it's sad, um, and and I will. <laughs> I do not have a medical degree, but I, I feel like I say this a lot about guys who get PRPs. I, I don't really know what the success rate is of really ultimately avoiding Tommy John surgery. I know the Angels are saying that they aren't going down that road yet. They don't agree that he probably will need Tommy John surgery, and they obviously know a lot more than me. But when I see the PRP, you know, and we talked about this with Casey Mize a little bit, who went number one overall in the draft, and he's been healthy all, all spring, and maybe he's an exception. But most of the guys that get PRPs, it, it seems like they have Tommy John surgery. And so you're kind of torn, no pun intended. Um, if you got surgery done sooner rather than later, you'd have him back quicker. If they try to rehab it and that doesn't work, I think you lose him for 2019 as well. Now, the the tricky part, or, or the, the, I guess, unusual part of this is as a two-way guy, I would, I mean, I think we've talked about this a lot. I, I like him more as a pitcher. I think he's got greater value long-term as a pitcher, so you want to try to get the pitching part fixed. But if you might lose him for a while, the bat's pretty good, too. And, and I mean, I remember, you know, we're talking about the College World Series. I saw Carlos Quinn out there one year where he, he basically couldn't throw because he needed Tommy John surgery, but he hit all year for Stanford. We saw Keston Hyera, who was a first-round pick of the Brewers, and I guess he's avoided Tommy John surgery at this point when a lot of people thought he'd have it. And he played through a severe elbow injury and still hit. Um, and I don't know the exact specifics, but, you know, the Angels are, are you know, making a run at least a little bit at a playoff, you know, spot. Uh, I, I, you know, again, it's, boy, you know, the whole two-way thing has been a tough question to begin with, but I'd be tempted, to be honest, I, I'd be tempted to, to maybe let him hit, you know, and see how that goes. Um, you know, it, it's just such a – Unique situation, but I think it's a, it's a loss for the Angels and it's a loss for baseball because, I mean, geez, I mean, that guy was, you know, one of the top, if not the top storylines when he was healthy. I mean, this is the first guy who was really doing this both ways to the extent he was doing it since Babe Ruth, and he was dominating on the mound. And I know he wasn't a, a regular in the lineup, but, you know, when he played, you know, 34 games, six homers, 900 ops, that, that, that's pretty good for your, you know, your, the, the second best of your, of your, your two-way uh, abilities. So it's just a shame. Trying to look for comparisons, and Jonathan, it seems similar. I mean, obviously, we don't know the full medical reports or anything like that, but I think this is kind of similar to Masahiro Tanaka, and he's been able to continue to pitch. Although I don't know if his stuff has ever been quite what it was before he had the injury a number of years ago. But the Yankees never went down the road of Tommy John surgery, and Tanaka has has continued to be out there um, for the most part, healthy and effectively. I guess that's. If it is similar to that, that's a bright spot and something maybe the Angels can hope for. 
Right. I mean, that's the sort of the one example that you can think of, and you know, it would take some research to do, like how many, as Jim said, how many of those guys you know, do eventually need Tommy Johnson. I felt like I kept waiting for Tanaka to need it. Um, so, um, you know, and, and I don't think he's Tanaka is the same guy that that he was. Yes, he's been able to, to go out there uh, and pitch, you know, and, and he wasn't trying to hit at the same time. So I I don't know what the right course of action is for this. You know, it's like given the 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 injection, see what happens. I don't know. Maybe shut him down on the mound for the year and just let him hit more. Um, you know, as a DH, get his bat into the lineup while letting the elbow rest and see what happens, um, and then reevaluate. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't really know what the right answer is, and no one really does because uh, it's hard enough to figure out how to manage this sort of situation if it's just the pitcher getting the injection. But then add in the fact that the, that he does both and and has value uh, with the bat, then it becomes a whole different kind of situation that's much more complicated. All right, the other injury was Vlad Guerrero Jr., uh, not as serious, strained patellar tendon in his knee. Um, Vlad, not a speed guy, obviously, but expected to miss at least a month. Um, There was a lot of questions about when should the Blue Jays bring him up? Will it be this year? Will they delay? Um, Does this set up a scenario with a month missed, Jim, that maybe the Blue Jays just kind of keep him in the minors all year? Yeah, and you know, I think they were trying to pump the brakes on that talk a little bit. Um, so I, I think that helps. I mean, it's a quandary. I mean, we talk about this all the time with with guy. I mean, do I think the guy's clearly ready to hit in the big leagues? Sure, I do. I really do. But the Blue Jays are thirty and thirty-seven. They're fifteen and a half games out in the American League East. I'm doing my quick wild card calculations here. I think they're twelve and a half back in the wild card race. The Blue Jays aren't going to the playoffs, and and while they should trade Josh Donaldson and get what they can for him, to start Vlad's service time clock ticking probably doesn't make any sense for the franchise, and they're probably much better off. I mean, and he is only 19. They're they're probably you know that makes it a little bit easier. Not that I think public perception or the clamoring for Vlad is going to drive the decision, but I think it makes it a little bit easier to say, look, you know, the guy's only played 53 games in AA and he's 19 years old. What's the hurry? And, you know, from the the standpoint of the franchise, you know, long-term best interests, and I hate to say this because I want to see him in the big leagues, it probably makes sense to wait till next year, you know, till you know, somewhere after the first couple months when he won't be eligible for Super 2 arbitration. And wait until then. I mean, he'll still be only 20, but there's with a team out of contention, uh, there's just absolutely no benefit to pushing him. It's not like you're going to get him at bats this year, and then that's going to ready him and help the Blue Jays contend next year because they're you know they're a couple of years away and they're going to have to rebuild. Jonathan, I mentioned the kind of player he is. It doesn't seem like this is an injury that's going to really have any major effect on him. Once he's back, he'll be back. Oh, yeah, I would think so. I mean, the one thing he you know, anytime there's a knee thing, is the recurrence. Uh, it's not going to take away from any part of his game um, because, he, as he said, he's not a runner. Um, but uh, you have to worry about uh, it happening again or there being further knee trouble that just keeps him off the field. Um, does it hasten the move from third to first eventually? If, it, if it's something that keeps cropping up, maybe. Uh, you know, and there's, there's always been the concern about that and, and you know, about his his body in general and being able to stay at third, and so it, it raises the 
minor question about that, but I wouldn't worry about that until it's, it's something that uh, uh, you know that that does happen over and over again. It's more more likely to be the kind of thing that he rehabs and gets past and and, and is fine. But it it bears watching just because you know any time off the field is less reps and less chances for him to swing the bat. Yeah, we want to see Vlad back on the field. We want to see Otani back on the field in some way as well. Uh, definitely, that's going to do it for this. Wait, edition. wait, wait, wait oh. one thing. Oh, one Jim's thing, got a Jim, thought. Sorry, I want to I want to chime in real quick. Oh, I see your note right. Just I, I got five words. I got five words for Jonathan. Yeah. They'll hopefully bring a smile to his face. Vlad Jr. Arizona Fall League. Ooh, I'm in. I'm in too. Like I, that to me is the only positive to this is that it's not like a season-ending injury and he's a hitter and he's going to lose at bats. So I'm thinking we might get Vlad Jr. in the Arizona Fall League. So I'm, I'm going to take that as the lone positive to all of this. That is a great silver lining. See that? We're ending the podcast on a positive note. Nice job, Jim. All right, that's, that's going to do it for this edition of the Pipeline Podcast. Thanks to Jim and Jonathan and also Lonnie Goldberg, the Royal Scouting Director, for joining us. I'm Tim McMaster. Tune in again next time. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.